What I'd like to talk about tonight are some of the reasons, spiritual reasons and psychological reasons, why sometimes it seems hard to uh, offer well wishes to particular people. Often it's it's hard to overcome some of the blocks to totally being the kind of loving and compassionate person that we know is the meaning of happiness. And listen to Joseph's talk last night. It seems so clear that uh, ultimate compassion, ultimate open-heartedness, really not adding pain to already painful situations by resenting our lives and recriminating others seems so clearly the healthy way to live. And yet it's sometimes quite hard When we talk about that being happy is the fundamental essence of who we are, that the nature of mind is spacious and untroubled, unruffled up, it radiates happiness and compassion, sympathetic joy. That really sounds good. And yet, in our experience, so often, it doesn't feel that good. Get all tied up in knots. And then it seems actually sometimes a little insulting, maybe, to hear that the essence of mind is actually that great, spacious, equanimous ability to react with goodwill and compassion and altruistic joy. If that's not our current experience, we feel even worse about ourselves. How come we're not doing it? If it's really just our nature and there's nothing to do, really nothing to do, just to relax and be our true selves. And we make it so hard for ourselves. In fact, I think for myself, that kind of awareness sometimes seems to me really a great insight into the, uh, another way in which we can understand the insight about life is suffering. It's so easy in a certain way, if that's our nature. And yet we get so tangled up in struggle. So what I wanted to talk about was, were those two categories of blocks, spiritual blocks and psychological blocks, with the hope that maybe they might ease some of the tension around opening wholeheartedly to all beings. You know, it's, it's, it's probably so for everyone that all beings is not a difficult category. All beings, we don't know all beings, and there are so many of them, and they seem sort of vague and out there. So the all beings category is not a difficulty for us. And the right close up to us category is not a difficulty either. There are benefactors and our best beloveds, our good friends. We have trouble with them sometimes, but we mostly remember that we love them a lot. And neutral folk, because a lot of times we can tap into the fact that they, just as we, would like to be happy, and we can kind of embrace them in that understanding that we are just like each other. But somewhere in between neutral folk and all beings, that category that we have a lot of resistance to opening to. 
So talk about uh, a little bit about the, the kind of spiritual blocks, or actually spiritual errors, that prevent us from opening first. And then we'll talk about some of the psychological ones. Joseph said last night in his talk, uh, in an effort, I'm sure, to um, uh, help everyone feel easier about not being able to be totally loving to all beings always, he said, we're not Mother Teresa. I'd like to suggest that we are. But that the difference between Mother Teresa and us is she remembers who she really is, and we have mostly forgotten. And so the job of spiritual practice is to wake up, to remember that we are. She remembers. Mother Teresa has a really good grasp on anatta. Uh, I don't know that she knows that she has a really good grasp on anatta, but I know that she does. I know that she does because when people ask her about how it is that she is able to just endlessly, and apparently with all of her energy, devote herself without uh, becoming demoralized, to the most distressing states of illness and pain in people and confront quite visually um, people in, in very distressing circumstances. And she responds to the question, how can you bear to look at people in that distress? And she said, for me, it's not a question of bearing. They all look to me like Jesus. And I really understand that in the sense of her understanding that the commonly held notion that we are all different is just a notion and that it's a specious one. That when we realize that what this is, what this mind-body organism is, is just that of temporal organism of body, mind, miraculous and interesting and distinct and distinct from others, but in some fundamental way not separate from others, that there is nothing about this organism or any living temporal organism that is permanent. There is nothing about this that's permanent or anything else that's permanent. And in that, we are all sharing in the great experience of arising and passing away. There's nothing substantial or enduring anywhere that could separate any of us from any other insubstantial, transient, conditioned phenomenon. In religious talk, we talk a lot about experiencing that we are as one. We are as one. We are one. In other kinds of religious talk where people talk about each other in religious communities as brothers and sisters. In the largest sense, we're really each other. We really are. I had an experience. I was in Jerusalem recently for a month. And one of the things I did was I um, visited uh, Yad Vashem, which is the 
Holocaust Memorial. Um, and it's an extraordinary experience. When I got there with my husband, we came together, and as we approached the first building that we were going in, I said, uh, I can't do this together with you. You have to go separately, and I'll go separately. Because I knew that it would be an astounding experience, and I couldn't bear to have anybody with me. I needed to do it by myself. And the first building that I went into is the building that commemorates um, the one million children that were killed in the Holocaust. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing memorial. It's very plain. There are no photos, there are no displays. Uh, there's really nothing. My best m recollection of it, and I was quite astounded when I went in, so I'm not sure that I've seen it fully. Uh, and I didn't do it twice, was that it was a large dark room that you entered in one side and walked out the other side. My sense is that it has mirrors all around and that there are memorial candles uh, set around in different places. Uh, memorial candles, you know, are little glasses with wax in them and uh, you buy them to celebrate the uh, anniversary of the death of uh, a relative. And they're quite small, they're glasses, and they have wax in them and a candle. But they're definitely memorial candles, not candles. And they're memorial candles, but I don't know how many of them, but because of the way that the um, mirrors are placed, they are reflected all over the place so that they look like stars. And you can see lots and lots of candles. And as you walk through, there's a tape recording that's going all the time. And what it is, is a recitation of names. And it sounds something like Mira Polanski, Krakow, Poland, seven years old. Jean Gross, Strasbourg, France, 10 years old. Reja Rice, Amsterdam, Holland, 12 years old. All it is is a recitation of names. And I walked in and I was stunned by it. And I thought to myself, these names could be Colin Vickman, San Francisco, California, seven years old. Leah Boerstein, Nevada, California, four years old. It was a moment absolutely stunning in terms of, in, in which it was clear that everyone's children are everyone's children. When we know that everyone's children are everyone's children, it doesn't matter. that they're not ours, biologically. They could be. When I first began to do uh, Buddhist practice, I heard the story about the Buddha leaping over a cliff when he was a bodhisattva in uh, a prior incarnation, hearing tigers uh, 
crying at the base of a cliff and looking over and seeing that the mother tiger couldn't uh, feed them because she was too weak to sustain herself. And in a moment, without a thought, he leaped over the side of the cliff. And the story goes on to say that she was too weak even to eat him for nourishment. So he cut his wrist so she could lick the blood so he could, she could then have the strength to eat him and feed the tiger cubs. And when I first heard that story about 20 years ago, I was put off by it because uh, I couldn't imagine that kind of non-self-conscious generosity, giving yourself away. I'm closer to understanding it now. The kind of thing that I think about is if somebody said, now that I have grandchildren particularly, if somebody said, you need to make a decision, your grandchildren's life can be saved if you give yours in the next moment, I would have no hesitation at all. I'm positive about that. The, the fact that I'm positive about that really confirms for me that that's a possibility of the human heart. When I heard the story about the Buddha, I didn't know it was a possibility. But now I know it's a possibility of the human heart. And I see that what, what stands between me and really being a bodhisattva is that I still remember who are my grandchildren. And what, what remains as a lifetime, and probably many, many lifetimes of work, is to really get it straight and all the time that everybody is my grandchild. That's the piece of that learning. There's another piece. The other piece has to do with, also with the Yad Vashem Memorial, because there's a, um, a part of that um, whole memorial gardens. There are different buildings and different memorials. And one of them is a memorial to non-Jews who protected Jews or hid them or saved them or at great peril to their own lives because if they had been caught they would have been killed and their families would have been killed. And people came to the door, their neighbors came to the door often being pursued and said, take me in. And they did. And they kept them hidden in basements. In, the, in multitudinous Uh, repetitions of the Anne Frank story happened all over the place and after the war there wasn't very much talk about it the people who had done it didn't particularly come forward and tell about themselves and now over the years people have told their stories and told about them and people have gone to search them out and write books about them and psychologists have interviewed them and uh, they're called righteous and the, 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 uh, the, the uh, part of the Yad Vashem Memorial is devoted to those righteous non-Jews. Righteous is a wonderful word. Uh, and people interviewed them and said, why did you do that when people came to your door? And the people's uh, reactions more or less always the same. And why didn't you come forward and tell about the fact, I mean, you did such a heroic thing. People said, first of all, I didn't feel like a hero. And second of all, they said, I really didn't do it, usually, for any kind of a noble or spiritual reason. Didn't have a big story about that it should be done. Mostly, they said, I did it 
because they couldn't not do it. And that's very important to me. There's a book by Harold Schulweis that I, I wish I remembered the name. I just read it. It's a recent book. It's a rabbi in Los Angeles talking about that phenomenon that we need to look at more, he was saying. What is that phenomenon of people who say, I could not do otherwise? The Buddha, when he leaped over the cliff, could not do otherwise. It's not self-conscious. It's not thought out in terms of being heroic. It's not anything. It's definitely not self-conscious. We make that error of thinking that there is a separate self that we have to protect, that there are things that are me, that are special for me, and mine, and I have to protect them. And that's really the beginning of pain, beginning of struggle, beginning of suffering. It's a wonderful poem that a friend of mine reminded me of this afternoon, or a line from Ryokan, the Zen monk poet. The story is told about him that uh, he had a very uh, humble cabin with not many things in it. But he arrived home to his cabin one day to find that there was a thief stealing everything that was in it. So he helped him pack up everything that was in it and sent him off with it. And then when he'd gone and there was nothing left in his cabin, he went out and he sat down outside and a beautiful full moon came up. And he said... I wish I could give him that moon. Isn't that wonderful? You think about Ryokan. Doesn't need to hold on at all. He's a happy person. Doesn't need to hold on to stuff that he needs, to his stuff, to his view, to his rights. He's a happy person. It's really the ultimate in fearless living. If you discover that you can't protect anything really because there's nothing that you can really hold on to. And besides, there's no one there to hold on to it anyway. You could really live quite fearlessly and then quite happily. And you could just be very generous with all your stuff. Ryokan was generous with his stuff. When we do loving-kindness practice, we are generous with our good wishes. Why shouldn't we be generous with our good wishes? We lose nothing. It's not like we have a limited amount of good wishes and we'll use it up. And talk then a little bit about um, the psychological reasons that we hold on and don't give away good wishes. I reminded myself it was time to move on when I thought about the notion that somehow we have a a certain amount of it and we have to hold on to it and we can't give it up or waste it on someone who doesn't deserve it. Do you ever hear that comment that people make, say he doesn't deserve it? That's such an odd thing to say. I mean, it's a person struggling and there's an unlimited amount of it. So how could anybody not deserve? It's the strangest thing. I heard somebody say once, more than once, I'm never going to forgive so-and-so the whole rest of my life. 
And it's such a sad thing to hear. That person, when they say that, is saying, I am condemning myself to a whole life of discomfort. I am determined, I am determined to hold on to these bad feelings the whole rest of my life. I'm not going to accidentally put them down and accidentally be happy. It's, it's really the strangest thing, I and mean, it reminds me a little bit of um, uh, old Western movies. Now, Western movies are not so maybe politically correct, so we don't see them. But in the old days, in the old days, they would always often have a scene in the comedies where a person being rowdy would get uh, arrested, and the sheriff would come and take him and put him in a jail and close the door. And you, the viewer, knew that the door was not locked. Uh, The key is in the door, but uh, worse, the key is in the door, the door is not locked. Person is in the cell, holding the bars, shaking the bars and shouting. And you know, that's the joke, the whole audience, audience laughs, because they know that all he needs to do is reach around, get the key, open the door, and let himself out. And instead, when we make a comment like, I'm never going to forgive so-and-so the whole rest of my life, what we're doing is we're taking out that key, we're locking ourselves in, taking out the key, and throwing it across the room. We really are determined to stay locked in the unhappiness of being angry forever. But we have to figure out why are we doing that, because we're not foolish. Why would we do that? Everybody wants to be happy. Why would we accidentally do such an unhappy thing? Often people explain it to me in terms of they are concerned about vulnerability. And say, if I, re, if I were to forgive so-and-so, I could get hurt again. And I understand that thought, but not really. Because I think, it's a, I think that uh, it's an era of thinking that if we forgive then it means we also get amnesia and forget. And that's not true. You could forgive somebody and remember that they're not a safe person to be around and that you shouldn't hang around them. You could forgive somebody and remember that you don't like them or that they're not likable. (laughs) Loving people does not mean liking them in the sense of meta-love. doesn't mean liking them. Sometimes people are very distressing, doing very distressing things. But harboring ill will on them is extra. Recognizing this is an unpleasant person who behaves in unskillful, hurtful ways, would be unwise for me to hang around with them. If I could stop them or help them change their ways, I'll try to do that. All of those are skillful ways. Unskillful is really hating it because that's painful and it doesn't help anybody. But we have that notion, so I'm just putting it out because people might want to think about it in their own lives. We have a notion, if I forgive, I'll be vulnerable and people will hurt me again. It's really a non sequitur. It's not true. It's kind of a magical notion that if I keep my guard up, then the cosmos won't get after me. It's a totally magical notion. I mean, by having the guard up, it's just a guard up. I mean, we're not in charge of the cosmos. Guard up or down, it doesn't matter. So it's a magical kind of a notion, and it doesn't work. 
somebody named Tom once was on a retreat with me, and he said, uh, he said in a in in a small group discussion, I was talking about this, and he said, you know, just really so simply, he said, well, you know, Sylvia, forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom. I said, Tom, that's a wonderful line. I said, do you mind if I use that when I teach? And he said, no, you can use it. And he said, but every time you use it, you have to say, Tom said it. (laughs) So I always have. It's another reason why people uh, sometimes have a hard time giving up anger. Sometimes they think it mobilizes them into action. You know, if I don't really get angry at those folks who have a different social view than I or a different political view than I, I won't get out and vote. I won't get out and do social action. I think that's exactly extra and actually deleterious to voting or social action. I think we are absolutely compelled to do all the social action we can do to make this an equitable and a just world, but not angrily. We'll do it better if we don't do it angrily. Voting is imperative. It used to be a kind of a thing about, oh, I don't read the paper and it's, you know, it's not my... That's really indifference. I grew up in a family where voting is a, was a religious act. Everybody... That I, I'm, I'm really a child of immigrants who came here because voting is a religious act. We preserve the rights for certain kinds of uh, important ways to live. I always vote. I get absentee ballots on off years to vote for school boards, small things. I don't think that we need to be angry in order to participate fully as an active member of society. I think we participate better if we're not angry. Sometimes people, and this always surprises me, seem to think that staying angry at somebody for something is a form of revenge, like that other person is hurting from my not wishing them well. That sometimes people say, I wouldn't give that person the benefit of what it, I wouldn't give that person the time of day. That's an expression that people use. Somehow that the benefit that we wouldn't give the benefit of not being angry at them as if it will lighten up that person's life. When you think about it, if you sit and you'd be angry at somebody here, that person is going around having a life wherever they are. And you are sitting in the middle of a, really a pool of anger. And the only person's life who's seriously hampered at that point is your own. But somehow it feels like we're getting even with a person if we're being mad at them. Sometimes we do it by telling other people how bad this person is. And then we feel we're getting even with them by spreading bad word about them. But I think we don't even feel that good about ourselves after we do that. So really, it comes back on ourselves. It's not worth it. I think sometimes people stay angry because they think it's um, an exciting feeling. 
they think about so-and-so that did them wrong. And it's kind of um, um, an exciting body feeling, especially righteous indignation. You can tell a story a lot of times, and you don't have to feel badly about it because you were right and they were wrong. And it gets up a lot of energy in the body. I was once going to the uh, Oakland airport in the middle of the night, some years, a long time ago. Driving to the Oakland airport in the middle of the night to meet my husband, and it's a very boring hour-long ride from where I live on a freeway that's very unremarkable, and it's quite easy to fall asleep, and it was late at night. And I started, I was very sleepy at the wheel, and I was really worrying about not going to make it away to the airport. And as I'm driving along and I'm struggling to stay awake, I suddenly had a thought about a certain person in my family who had done me wrong. And I had that thought, and I woke up. (laughs) Because I was right, and they were wrong, and I had all this exciting energy of anger. So I thought, this is terrific. Now I'll avoid an accident on the highway. By thinking this story over and over again. So I (laughs) told myself innumerable ramifications of how she had done me wrong and what she said and I said and she said and I said what I should have said and what I could have said, (laughs) say the next time. So I was wide awake by the time I came to the airport and also probably in a pretty grumpy mood by that time. But I was proud of myself because it was in the early days of my practice and I didn't know very much about mind-body interaction at that point and I thought I had figured out a very remarkable thing. (laughs) So a couple of days later I saw one of my teachers and I told him about it. I told him I was so proud of myself I figured out how to protect myself from falling asleep on the highway. And I got all finished uh, he said, he said, that's pretty good. He said, you're right about the mind-body states. He said, but, you know, you could have thought a sexy thought and it would have done the same thing. <laughs> would have been in a better mood, too. <laughs> in fact, the end of that is all of those kinds of thoughts that you ruminate and ruminate and ruminate in order to agitate up the body energy. Actually, ultimately get tiresome. You know, sit anger, anger, anger. Think any kind. If you sit here and you think even sexual fantasies all day long because it feels like they're interesting. Actually, after a while they get boring and it's tiresome. The most splendid kind of mind state, really, it's really a peaceful one, not agitated, with um, either one of those kinds of confusing energies. But I think that that's one of the reasons that people sometimes um, seem addicted to remaining angry. It kind of brings up a sense of liveliness in the body. I think I really cannot watch Crossfire anymore. Do you ever watch Crossfire on CNN? People with very bright people, very bright people, well-informed, discuss political issues, but they discuss it in a way 
That's the ultimate in confrontation. They cut each other off before each other has finished speaking. And people turn that on because they like that sort of, I guess, because it's very popular. People like that kind of dueling. And I find it totally jarring and upsetting. I like to have conversations. I don't like to have confrontations to begin with. And if I do have them, and I have another opinion from the one that's just been expressed, my favorite thing to do is to be able to say, wait a minute, I have another opinion. I like to just think a minute about what you said, and I'll regroup my opinion, and then I'll tell you what I think. That would be my favorite. That's so far away from what they do. And people watch that, and I think that they enjoy vicarious confrontational stuff because it's so energetic. Probably if they discussed it quietly and peacefully, people wouldn't watch because it's kind of captivating, all that excitement. I think one more reason why it's hard sometimes for people to give up anger stories about people who have hurt them is we have a lot of identity tied up in them. It's kind of our story. You know, people say, uh, hello, how are you? What's, you know, you meet someone, you go out on a date the first time. You want to tell them about you. We normally don't tell them about the spiritual epiphanies of our life. You know, they tell about our story. Uh, and, then, and we have a certain story about ourselves, which often is uh, difficulties that we've had. And I think we tell the story a lot because we're trying us in some way in our mind to figure out why did that happen to me when it's really a bad story. Don't want to trivialize the fact that some people have very bad stories, some terrible things have happened to so many people. Really, that's why I told, and one of the reasons why I told the Yad Vashem story. That's not the only Holocaust in the world. Holocaust before, Holocaust after, Holocaust currently. International Holocaust, intergroup Holocaust, interfamilial Holocaust. So not to trivialize the fact that there are some very, very real pains that people have suffered and been traumatized by. How shall we move away from those traumas and away from that story to now because the trauma isn't happening now. Hmm? That somehow we often, for various reasons, and none of them because we wouldn't rather have it otherwise, get trapped in the story of what was even though it's not happening now. Maybe all of the above reasons it's part of our story we're afraid it'll be happening again We're vigilant on the horizon lest it be happening again. What really is, I think, um, uh, an immediate possibility in terms of healing and in terms of relaxing is to look at what's happening now when we are confronted with anger and fear about what happened and what might happen. in the worst circumstances. When my father was dying, um, he lived right down the street from me, really, in 
I took care of him in the sense of being with him all during the days and ultimately being with him in the last weeks of his life. And he had the kind of cancer that's more and more degenerative, so uh, he was ultimately walking around on a walker and in a wheelchair. and um, Not in such terrible pain, though, amazingly. Um, and uh, maybe a month before he died, um, I came to his house one morning. We were going to spend the day together. And he was in a very down mood. He wasn't in terrible pain, but he was in a very down mood. And by and large, he hadn't been. He was teaching up until the very last minute. He taught classes. When he couldn't go to school anymore, they came to his house and he taught. Um, He wasn't in terrible, terrible physical pain. But he knew he was dying. We talked about it all the time. We made all the plans for what would happen, including which of his grandchildren he would much prefer being reborn into the family of. So he really knew he was dying. And most of the time he was okay about it. And one day I came, and uh, it's not unreasonable, one day I came, and he was really very despondent. And it was a very dreary day out also. And it was early in the morning. And it's kind of a long day loomed out ahead of us. Wasn't in terrible pain, but gloomy. And I said, let's go out. Let's go to the movies. Let's go see uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It had just come out. And uh, I like those movies. So I said, let's go see Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he looked up at me suddenly with an incredulous look, you know, and he said, I'm dying, you know. And I said, yeah, I know, but not today. (laughs) And we went to the movies. And we went to the movies, and we went out to dinner in a restaurant that he really liked. And we had a great dinner, and we went home, and the next day he got pneumonia, and he went to the hospital, and a few weeks later he died. And it was a very important lesson for me in terms of, but not today. All kinds of hurts have happened to us in the past, but not today. I think it's the most immediate way to help us to disengage from the stories of the past that frightened us appropriately frightened us. Terrible things happen to people. Terrible, terrible things. If they're not happening today, we can have a moment of saying today, it's not happening today. It was terrible, and it's not happening today. If we recriminate our lives for what they were, we won't have a moment of peace because they're just what they are. And along with all the joy and the beauty and the happiness and the wonder and the awe, there's so much pain in everybody's life, inevitably. We cannot get out of this life without pain. Everything that is dear to us is going to be lost to us if we're not lost to it first. There's a line in the Buddha's teaching where he said, everything that is dear to us causes pain. And it's true. And yet, you know, sometimes I hesitate to teach it to people when they take a 
a beginning course. So I don't want to discourage them about Buddhism. I don't want it to sound too gloomy to begin with. But it's true. Everything that is dear to us causes pain because it will be lost to us. It will be separated from us. It will change or we will change. The great teaching of the Buddha is that it doesn't have to cause suffering. Or it doesn't have to cause so much suffering. For myself, I'm really content with um, less suffering. I'd love it if I were totally enlightened. I think that'd be great. Um, But it hasn't happened. I get caught in my stories and I forget that there's nothing to protect and no one who's separate and that it's all changing and that there's nothing that's graspable. I grasp and I cling and I suffer, but I do it less than I used to. And so I suffer less than I used to. Another great lesson of practice has been that suffering is manageable. I didn't used to think so. There were things that I used to be very afraid of. I used to think, if that happened to me, I could never manage. But it turns out, it all happens and you can manage. And it's a great liberating piece of knowledge because then life gets less frightening. When we do this practice of metta, I want to talk about it as the other great antidote to that holding on to the past. One is the awareness. It's not happening now. The other comes, the other path comes through the cultivated, the cultivation of these extraordinary mind states, these Brahma Viharas, these best homes that we've been cultivating all this week. Makes such a spacious quality of mind with all those characteristics that are themselves the natural antidotes to pain and struggle and alarm, agitation, fear. In that kind of spaciousness of mind, the fears are really dissolved in a certain way. The moment that the Buddha leaped over the cliff, there's no fear in that moment. You're just doing what you're doing. Because there's no separation. No even thought about it. There was a fire in the World Trade Building, you all know it, a couple of years ago. And uh, there are a lot of stories about heroism, about people who uh, jeopardize their own life, their own escape, by uh, taking care of other people who couldn't get out of the building so well. And all of them talked about it in the same way as people who, in time of war, sheltered people. Everyone says, I can't do otherwise. It's a part of myself. If I wouldn't leave a part of my body on the 67th floor of the World Trade Building, why would I leave this person there? I mean, you can't do it. 
in those moments of spacious understanding that we're not separate, there's such a happiness. We're all doing our life for each other. It relieves me of the burden of being anything other than what I am. I have a friend uh, who uh, goes around the world and uh, teaches Dharma in the most difficult places. He goes to uh, remote places in Siberia and Mongolia and he goes to places that where there are wars going on and uh, at one point he was telling me his itinerary and he told me about that he was going to be in, uh, in Medellin because he was going to lecture in the university there. And I said, Alex, I mean, there's, uh, Medellin, they're shooting each other and Medellin is dangerous there. He said, yeah, but there are students in the university that uh, really are very interested in Buddhism and so I, I go. And I thought to myself, I've thought many times since, I'm not ready to go to Medellin. I'm really not. I think about it, I sit in Spirit Rock and it's beautiful there and it, it's definitely safe in terms of whatever. Outside conflict. And I think to myself, I'm happy that Alex goes to Medellin because then I don't have to do it. He's doing it for me. And I'm doing my life for him. And you're doing your life for me. And I don't have to do any of your lives because you're doing them for me. And I'm doing mine for you. It's such a nice, friendly, unseparate feeling. It relieves me of the burden of being anything but what I am. And you also. If I could live in that awareness, if any of us could live in that awareness, we'd be home free. We are all one. And if I could remember that, no aversion, no separate self, no sense of my need would ever arise, and so I wouldn't suffer. I'm remembering that Joseph used to quote Wei Wu Wei a lot, who said, uh, if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. <laughs> it's a great line. I didn't hear it in a long time, so I thought I'd tell it to you. So I want to go, I just want to end by telling you a story uh, about how hard it is to live in that, spe- hold that awareness of we're a shared, um, we're a shared temporal arising and passing away phenomena in different shapes and forms, all part of each other. And that taking care of each other and loving each other is as natural as taking care of ourselves and feeding ourselves. That's one vision. It's the truth, and if we could hold it, it'd be great. And we fall back into our individual view. And then the trouble starts. But that's the edge of practice. So I'll tell you a story. I uh, was in Jerusalem recently for a month. And uh, I thought after I, I did some wonderful things, I have lots of friends there. I met wonderful friends and teachers and went to all kinds of classes and did lots of great things. And I think I did my most serious spiritual practice in the pool in the Jerusalem YMCA. And this is why. 
the pool where I swim in uh, Sonoma County is very orderly. People swim back and forth in lanes. <laughs> and they know about lane lines and lanes. And they know about swimming laps. So if I come and swimming is happening, I can ingratiate myself, insinuate myself into any one of those lines. I pick out a lane that seems to be my speed and you get in and then you swim long circles forward and back and forward and back and people stay in line. In Sonoma, in California, they do it like that. I came to the Jerusalem YMCA because I really wanted to work. I was going to be there for a month. It's hard not for me to have physical activity. I signed up, bought a month pass to the Y. I came in. I get undressed in the dressing room, put on my bathing suit, and I open the door into the pool. And the pool is full of mostly very large women in shower caps, zigging and zagging in all different directions. So I make an attempt to swim back and forth. But as soon as I swim two strokes, I hit somebody. And they didn't take it kindly. Early on, I hit somebody, and they not only got up and you know, I apologize, but I don't speak Hebrew very well. And they spoke to me in rapid-fire language that I didn't understand with a big gesticulation, meanwhile pointing to the lifeguard and pointing me out at the same time, making a spectacle out of me. So I had a hard time there in the pool and swam. And finally, I decided I would swim with my face out of the water so I could see where I was going and swim around people because they don't move. Even they see you coming, they don't move and they have conversations in the middle of the pool. So I had a hard time. And I came into the dressing room and... Uh, I listened to them, and I could tell from their language that uh, they, they were Russian immigrants because they were speaking a combination of Russian, some Yiddish, a little Hebrew. And I could tell, because I have enough understanding, to know that they were going to Opan, which means they're going every single day to learn Hebrew. And uh, I admired them because they were really struggling to acquire a new language um, at an advanced age. Because I looked around and I realized they were all older than I am. They probably are recent immigrants because that's why they're in Opan. So I figured out by looking at how old they looked to me and um, by figuring out that they must have come recently that they not only lived through uh, 50 years or almost 50 years of... Uh, Soviet regime, but they lived through the war as well before that. And in fact, I had one moment where everyone was all undressed because everybody was getting dressed. And I had kind of a flash of, I'm in a shower room essentially with a whole bunch of naked Jewish women. And 
I really had a hit of being very happy that those women had not perished in the war days. I was very happy that they were in Jerusalem. I was very happy that they were swimming in the pool and alive and well. And I was very happy that I had that realization because I thought, phew, because this wasn't on my first day. This is after several days of swimming and churning up all these terrible thoughts about they should put lane lines and they should give instructions and these women want to talk, they should get out of the pool and talk. (laughs) I'd spend all my time swimming back and forth thinking bad thoughts on these women about how they could do it better. And then, uh, which wasn't so pleasant for me to be thinking those bad thoughts. So after some time, I was in the locker room with them and getting dressed, and I had that thought. And I, first of all, was very happy that they were alive and well and swimming in the Jerusalem pool. I was also very happy that I had that awareness, um, terrifying as it is, because I thought, phew, Now I'll be finished with my bad thoughts about these women, and at least I'll be able to swim peacefully in the pool. So I'm really, I was really quite happy in that moment that those women were alive and well. So the reason I tell you that story is because it's harder to practice than I think, or it's as hard to practice as we know. Because I went home, I told my husband the story. I said, you know, my attitude about that women, women are entirely changed. So happy they're alive. and Not only alive, they're swimming and they're trying to learn Hebrew. And And the next time I came to the pool, I went in the pool, and they zigged and zagged, I started to think thoughts again. And the reason I tell you that is because I want you to know it's very hard. It's very hard not to have individual consciousness. It was a very sublime realization. That moment of realization was really terrific. I felt wonderful. I felt so relieved. And I came back, and I was sorry that they didn't swim straight in the lanes. (laughs) Maybe I was a little bit smoothed out from before. I was a little bit smoothed out from before because what I learned is how much better I felt when I was smoothed out. Reminded myself that it was no fun at all to be swimming in the pool and thinking those grumbly thoughts. And I, I really partly had to do it by, by, by wit and by intellect and to tell myself, listen, it's your choice. It's their pool. You either swim here or you don't swim here. This is the way they swim in this pool. That's the the beginning and end of the whole story. It's very zen, actually. It's their pool. That's the way they swim. It's my choice. If I come, it's my choice. If I'm there, what thoughts I fill my mind with while I swim back and forth are also my choice. I could swim and think, may these women be happy, may they be peaceful, may they thrive, may they live. Or I could think, They should put up lane lines and all that. And the swimming is the same. But my happiness quotient is much different depending on what I do. So I particularly wanted to tell you that story because a lot of times today people have been asking as we come to at least the end of the Metta retreat, 
How do you continue this practice in life? That's how you continue the practice in life. The practice is not the recitation of phrases. The recitation of phrases is a technique in the service of the practice of remaining open-hearted and loving and compassionate at all times. That's the practice. And it's not to be a terrific person, it's to be a happy person. That's the practice. Everything else that we do is in the service of that practice. It's a technique to help us do the practice of re-engaging with the relaxed essence of who we are, which is happy and loving and compassionate and expansive and joyful. So we'll sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 3, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.